Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4? As we continue our study on these Sunday nights through this wonderful little letter that Paul has written to the churches in southern Galatia. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 20. Picking up where Chase left off with Paul's exhortation to these believers that they have moved from slavery to sonship. And that in Christ, not by virtue of their heritage, not by virtue of their law-keeping, not by being a Jew, but that in Christ and by, by union with Christ, they are now all sons of God, and this is through faith. Um, that's the truth of 326, which is the center of these verses. Uh, and all that we are going to be continuing to consider, um, it flows from that one overarching truth. I love the passage that's before us tonight, because particularly beginning in verse 12, verses 12 through 20, there's going to be almost a parenthetical pause in Paul's frustration and, and, and anger um, in his writing. And, and he's going to move to share his heart for these Christians that he has led to faith in Christ. And um, I think it's always helpful for us to see something of the pastor's concern and care. Uh, I'm glad for the opportunity for you to see some of the things that, that burden my heart and soul for, for you guys and for the congregation here at Redeemer Baptist Church. That some of, the, some of what it means for, for me to take seriously the duty to, to shepherd and guard you in such a way as to know that I would give an account for your eternal souls. You know, pastors are often seen as weird guys. They're different. I don't know if you were with us back um, a couple of years ago, maybe now, when Greg Belser came from Morrison Heights Baptist Church in Clinton and shared with us at our preaching conference. And that was one of the points that he made, that, that we're different, you know. Um, part of the reason we're different is because we have a concern for the church and are concerned about things in the church that, maybe no one else sees or is concerned by. And, and that doesn't mean that, that it's wrong that no one else is. It means that it's part of our duty and our burden and our calling before God. But so I'm excited to turn to these pastoral verses tonight and to share with you Paul's concern for these Christian believers and particularly these churches, these congregations gathered together in Galatia. Before we read these verses, let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your church. God, we thank you for bringing us together um, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that by union with Christ, we have been made sons of God. God, we pray tonight that you would remind us of the gospel and the benefits of the gospel to us. And God, we pray that you would protect us from falling away, that we would be grown all the more in our love for Jesus Christ and in our love for your church and the people that you've put here. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So as we read, what I want you to think about, um, Paul's 
pastoral concern for the Galatians can be broken into three basic categories. We're going to see gospel concern. We're going to see relational concern, namely their relationship to him as their sort of pastor and missionary that led them to Christ, their father in the faith. And then even an intellectual concern, that is concern for their ability to reason and think clearly so that they might continue to believe um, faithful the truth. Um, Beginning in verse 8, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So Paul has been writing to these Christians that he saw and led to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he has been vehemently defending the integrity of the true gospel. There are these contingent known as the Judaizers. And they are a group of people from the the Christian church in Jerusalem. But that have been swayed by the persecution of the Jewish community. To preach and teach a false gospel. Namely, that you must not only believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Chase did a good job uh, this past Saturday, yesterday at the Men's Summit, speaking about the orthodoxy of the Judaizers in Galatians. All the things that they got right. Believed in Christ, probably in the Trinity. They had a good, they had a good doctrine of Christ. But they said, that's not good enough. You must also be a Jew. And, and traditionally so. You must keep the law. You must be circumcised. And evidently, as we see here, there was some encouragement to these Christians that they must necessarily then continue or begin to keep the Jewish calendar of feasts and festivals in order to be saved, in order to be found aright with God, that these things were necessary. And Paul knows that to attach anything, even one thing to the gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone for salvation is to nullify the grace of God completely. It is to preach a false and a damnable gospel. It is a gospel that has no place in the Christian church. And so Paul has been so direct. Paul is angry that they would fall prey to this stupidity. 
And that they would do so, so quickly. And so he is written with this, this um, zeal and this anger almost and this urgency calling them to come back and see the beauty of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ and to believe the gospel that he delivered to them to guard the good deposit of faith to understand that if they are in Christ they are indeed now sons of God through faith that they have been brought into the lineage spiritually speaking of Abraham That they are no longer enslaved to the law, but now they are sons of the Almighty. He begins by sharing his concern that they are abandoning their love for Christ. Look at verses 8 through 11. Paul's pastoral concern, his gospel concern, that they're abandoning their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. He basically says, look... This is not how you began. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. That is that they were enslaved and in bondage to other gods and other traditions and other laws. And none of them could save them. They they were all an enslaving burden where where they had to come day after day after day and perform certain things and do certain things, not do certain things, come here, go there in order to try to be good enough to be saved. And he says, you were a slave to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, and I love this, or rather to be known by God, what's his point? His point to them is, look, and remember, you didn't come to know God because of your pursuit and inquiry. (laughs) It's that God came to know you. It's that God came to find you. Not that he ever lost you in that sense, but you understand my point. And he says, this is not how you came to know God. This is not how God came to you. How then can you turn back again To these weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Who slaves you want to be once more. What's he asking? If you came to be in a relationship with God. Not through the slavery of tradition and law keeping. If that is how you found yourself in a relationship with the Almighty. Why now after that relationship has begun and been established by faith. Why in the world do you want to go back to those those weak and worthless and insufficient traditions and legalisms that did nothing to save you, only enslaved you? That's the question that he asks. He tells them in 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. He's saying that you have You've bought in. And whether it's the tradition of the Jews or the tradition of some pagans elsewhere in the world around them, they had bought in that there were these things that were necessary for them to perform in order to be saved. And Paul's concern is, listen very carefully, Paul's concern is that the craftiness of those that seek to deceive them has worked and that they have 
sprinkled just enough faults to lure the eyes of these Christians away from the value, supremacy, beauty, and glory of Jesus Christ alone to look to something else, to circumcision, to ethnic Judaism, to the heritage and tradition found there, to the festivals and feasts feasts and calendars and days and months and years. Whatever, whatever it is, you need to understand that Paul's deepest concern for these people is that they would fix their eyes and necessarily then their hope on anything other than Jesus. It is his supreme concern. It is his supreme priority. Why? Because you cannot love and serve God and love and serve another. It doesn't work that way. It's either all Jesus or no Jesus. It's either all the gift of God's grace or it's all your working and ability. And there is no in between. And any mixing of this kind of legalistic, meritorious working for salvation, even just a little bit with a whole lot of Jesus, is no Jesus at all. It nullifies and obliterates the grace of God. And guys, I have to tell you, this is not only Paul's concern for the Galatians. This is my concern for our congregation. This is Chase's concern for the men from the congregations that we gathered with. Some of them did not like what he had to say. His concern is that we would be duped by just a little bit of faults. Say, it's not really that big of a deal. They still love Jesus. It's a damnable gospel. Why? Because it's a gospel that can only enslave and kill you. It says that Christ has set us free. That by the grace of God, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, we're no longer slaves. Paul's going to go on to ask them, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. We'll talk about that in a minute. But then he's going to say, what has become of your joy? Down in verse 15. What has become of your blessedness? Let me tell you something. One of the reasons that Christians are so burdened by church. One of the reasons that Christians are so burdened by, quote, the gospel. Is because it's not the gospel. The gospel is not a burden. The grace of Christ is not slavery. It's not crushing. It's joy and hope. It's peace and reconciliation with God. When, when, when Christians get to the point that they are so burdened by their working in the church and serving according to their gifts... And coming to Bible studies and loving brothers and participating in corporate worship and coming to business meetings and helping attend to administrative and church discipline issues and membership issues. All the things that we talked about this morning, when those things are burdensome, it can only be because those people think that they must do them to be saved. 
we get the gospel, if we get the gospel right, and if we're clear on what Christ has done, then those things become a freedom and a liberation and a joy because of what Christ has done for me. I came with nothing in my hand to bring. Simply to the cross I cling. All I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. What's Paul going to say? I know nothing and I preach nothing among you except Christ crucified. Why? Because it's joy and it's life and it's peace. And it's hope. The traditions of men will kill you. I don't, I don't want the people in our church to be confused by just a little bit of the law and just a little bit of legalism because it will suck their joy right out. It will increase their bitterness and their apathy toward the church and the things of God. Paul's pastoral concern is that because of the craftiness of these that have snuck in and because of the orthodoxy on so many levels of these Judaizers and because they had let their guard down, his concern is that these congregations, by believing the tiniest lie and attaching the tiniest work to the gospel, that they had lost their view of the beauty and the value and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we never get there. Secondly, we see Paul's concern that they are abandoning not only their love for Christ, but their love for him. Guys, let me just share my heart with you for just a minute. My ability to be your pastor is intimately connected to your love for me and trust of me. If you think that I lack integrity, I cannot pastor you. You know, pastors can be a group of folks that are overly sensitive about accusations about their integrity. And maybe that's not always right, but you need to understand that Pastors are so concerned about their integrity and their word and the things that they say and the things that they do. Not that they do them perfectly because it is all I have. It is all we have. And if you lose love for and respect for and trust for the leaders of your church, this is going to become a joyless and a burdensome place and a relationship that will suck you dry. Guys, and it will do the same for me. You will resent me. And you will resent the church. And I may struggle not to do the same. Paul recognizes here that part of the problem, part of the reason that they have fallen prey it's because they no longer love and respect him, or at least he fears, as they once did. They are now looking to these Judaizers. The new kid on the block, uh, Paul's old hat. They've become so familiar with his apostolic direction 
That where they once were filled with love and appreciation for his teaching and his ministry and his clarity and his exclusivity. Holding up the true gospel and setting everything and everyone else that did not believe in it aside. Establishing their churches based on that truth. What do they now see? Look at what Paul says in 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Guys, being a pastor is not an easy task because it requires tough conversations. Chase says all the time, I don't think he minds me telling you this. He says all the time, if you're going to be a pastor, he, he tells young guys, like if you're going to sign up for ministry, you got to get used to the awkward. It's just, it's just part of the nature of what we do. I mean, I mean think just, just one example that comes to mind that's a real example for my own life and the life of the church. Not any time recently, not even here. But what about when a family comes to you to tell you that they're leaving the church for sinful, selfish, wrong reasons? As a pastor, I can, I can smooth it over and try to save the relationship. And, and, and I can encourage that, oh, that's, you know, I understand and, you know, these things happen and, you know, God moves people around and sometimes sheep change pens and whatever language pastors use. Or I can do my duty before God and call them to repent and tell them that they're wrong. And I can do that with love. But guys, that's not normally well received. It's normally seen as self-serving. Oh, you just want me here in your congregation because you need my money or you want my attendance or whatever the case may be so that their sinful desires are projected upon me. But you see, I have to do the duty nonetheless to love the sheep enough to tell them when they're going astray. It's what elders are called to do. And Paul simply says... You once loved me and appreciated my straightforwardness and my truthfulness and my teaching and my leadership. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? What does he say about these Judaizers? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. So, so you now find greater relational love and joy and intimacy with these Judaizers and you listen to them and you appreciate their teaching. But what Paul's telling them is what you don't see is that they are telling you what they are telling you, not for your good, but for their own. And this language back in, you know, 13 and 14, 12, 13, 14, and 15, it's very interesting because Paul says there was a time when I was with you at first that you had every opportunity to look down on me, to be offended by me, even physically. Look at what he says. He says, brothers, I entreat you to become as I am, for I also become as you are. That list, that's a play on words that goes with 8 through 11, his gospel concern with them. It's very ironic, isn't it, that Paul, the once zealous leader in the Jewish church, is now free from the slavery of Judaism because he's become more like a Gentile who doesn't have to keep the law. And these Gentile Christians who started by faith in Christ have now become more like Jews. <laughs> you, see the, you see the irony there. And Paul says, look, I wish you Gentiles would just be more Gentile like I am, <laughs> free from the Jewish traditions and the law and the legalism of that. There's a great irony there. 
But then he says, you did me no wrong. When? Look at what he says in 13. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. We don't know what this bodily ailment was. It may or may not be the thorn in Paul's flesh. It could have been some physical ailment or blindness or evidently it was something that was visible. We'll see that in a moment. And it caused him to have to stay there with them for maybe longer than they wanted and maybe longer than he wanted. But for whatever reason, in the providence of God, he was stricken so that he had to stay there with them. And so it gave him greater opportunity to lead and to preach and to teach to them. And look at what he says in 14. And though my condition was a trial for you, it was difficult. You did not scorn or despise me. So whatever it was, it was somehow offensive, maybe offensive to look at. It was off-putting. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't beautiful, perhaps. Whatever was going on, there was some reason that it would have been, at least humanly speaking, reasonable for them to scorn and despise and find occasion not to heed his words, not to love him, not to respect him, and not to listen to him. But what does he say? But back then, when you had reason, perhaps, you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What's he say? There was a time when you had a profound appreciation for me. When you loved me and when you trusted me and when you looked to me. What's Paul's concern now? That one of the reasons that they're now being led astray in terms of the gospel, it's because they have abandoned their love and their appreciation for Paul. It's that simple. And so then in 16, he says, how am I now your enemy simply by telling you the truth? And then he articulates, they may be telling you something that tickles your ears, but it's for their benefit I may be telling you things that are hard for the ears to hear, but it's because I love you and I want you to be benefited. What does he say? It's always good to be made much of, 18, for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. Why? Because his desire. Even in the difficult tone of this letter, even in the hard words of a shepherd to the sheep and of a pastor to his people, because he truly loves them, he wants to see Christ formed in them. Guys, that's the second thing that I want you to know. I want to be very honest with all of you. My concern is not that you like me. My concern is not that you like what I say. My concern is not even for your temporal well-being and prosperity so much, at least first. Guys, as a pastor, my highest calling and my first concern is to lead you in such a way that Christ be formed in you. And guys, that's a tough and a difficult road to trod. And it may require relational strain. 
But I hope that I would not become your enemy as Paul did by telling you the truth. And I want to do that in love. And Paul, I think, wanted to do that in love. But coming from the heart of a pastor, you need to know that when I stand before God one day and am required to give an account for the way that I shepherded the souls of the people at Redeemer Baptist Church, I want to be able to say, even if they bristled against it, I tried to love them in such a way that Christ would be formed in them. Whatever that means and whatever that looks like. And you can, you can help me. You can tell me where I'm not doing that well. You can pray for me that I would be better. But you need to know that that's my heart and that's my goal. So Paul had a concern that they were abandoning their love for Christ. Paul had a deep concern that that was in part because they were abandoning their love and appreciation for him, where once they had opportunity to maybe scorn and despise him, now they're only scorning and despising him because he's telling them the truth that they do not want to hear. Paul's simply telling them the gospel, and it's challenging the gospel that they're currently believing. And so now their joy is gone, their blessedness is gone, and Paul is the, you know, the messenger. And sometimes the messenger gets... Uh, gets punished. But lastly, what I want you to see is that Paul is concerned also that they're abandoning good reason. They're abandoning good reason. This is what he's getting at in the latter part of this that we've already read a couple of times. He tells them in 17, they make much of you, but it's not for a good purpose. They want to shut you out that you might make much of them. Paul is in some way and on some level advocating that these people see what's actually in front of them. He's encouraging them to think. In gospel terms, to think. He's forcing them to ask self you know, reflective questions. What is the benefit of keeping the law, of keeping the calendar, of celebrating the feasts? What is the benefit of being circumcised? If you have already come to know God or to be known by God, he says, why in the world does it make any sense whatsoever that now to keep that knowledge and relationship, you would have to do something else? And when put like that, you can see the stupidity of that. Guys, sometimes what it means to be a good leader, to be a good teacher, and to be a good pastor is to help other people see the insanity, to borrow my brother's term, of their own belief system. I want to preach in a way And I want to teach in a way. And I want to lead our congregations in a way that causes you to think. Because you don't need to just depend on me to tell you what to believe. I'm not always going to be around in every circumstance, in every occasion of your life. I want you to use your brain. I want you to put the Spirit of God in you to work. I want Christ to be formed in you insofar as you are using good, sanctified reason and common sense. I want to show you, like, for example, how the prosperity gospel preachers and the word of faith preachers and other heretical teaching ministers 
I want you to see the fallacy of their gospel and how through their gospel they are seeking to take advantage of you. I want to show you the inconsistencies of your theological um, hermeneutics and the way that you approach Scripture. Not to be mean and not to just be right, but to be sharp so that as as servants in the kingdom and citizens of the kingdom, we might be effective soldiers. Together, all of us. It's like John MacArthur said, I know that I'm wrong, I just don't know where. (laughs) I want us to consider together and critically think together and examine all of the areas. Listen, the church sometimes wants all of the issues to be so simple and so black and white. Look, I've got news for you. The least simple place I know of is the church. The issues are deep. The complications are vast. The theological implications are huge. And the word of God speaks clearly to most all issues that we face. But we have to give time and labor and depth to understanding what it is that God has said and see where we have gone wrong. Guys, sometimes we're so blinded by something. What, what's the statement? That we miss the forest for the trees. When you can't see what's in front of you. Paul's going to pick this back up in chapter 6, verse 12. In most of your translations, it's just on the next page. But speaking of the Judaizers, he says this in closing, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh that would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Why were they requiring the Galatians to do something in addition to believing in Christ? It was not because they really believed, I don't think that it was necessary for salvation, but because they wanted to save their own hide and their own reputation in Jerusalem among the Jews. And Paul is Paul is encouraging these Christians to look and see what is in front of you. Use good reason and listen to me and let me encourage you to think. I love the language here in 19 for all of these concerns. This just tells you a little bit of the anguish of pastors. Because often people don't want to listen. And when you try to help them see that their argument is flawed, then they think you're just arrogant and wanting to be right. And people don't want to hear and people don't want to see and they don't want to engage and they don't want to be changed. And none of us do. Look, I don't. Look, I don't either. This is something we all struggle with. But what that does for the one who is laboring to bring about the change, my little children... For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Paul knew he was not a woman. And he knew that they did not need to be born again again. So so don't make Paul say something that he isn't. I think Paul is choosing what was commonly and humanly known to be the greatest pain that we experience apart from whatever kills us. Look, I've never had a baby, but I've, I've seen babies born. And I know that it looks really painful. And to speak of the anguish of labor is the pain that one voluntarily endures 
in order to bring about a life for the good of the child. And Paul says, I love you enough to to endure labor pains in order to see you born again in Christ. I am willing to suffer and endure this anguish because I love you and want to see, he says here, Christ formed in you. Guys, in some ways, preaching this section may seem and even feels a bit self-serving. Um, but I'm committed to teaching you what, what the Bible teaches. And what the Bible teaches is that the pastors and the shepherds that God puts in your life, they're a gracious gift of God for the good of the church. And in part, when they are faithful, if we will submit to them together, we will not be led astray into false teaching. Guys, love your pastors. And since I have three other ones here that help me, I don't, I'm not telling you to love me. <laughs> love your elders. Pray for them. Support them. Trust them. And know that we care and we suffer greatly at times because our ultimate goal and hope is that Christ be formed in all of us. Let's pray together. God, we, uh, we thank you for the gifts of grace that you give us. And God, we recognize that sometimes those gifts are not always by us seen to be so good. God, we know that sometimes relationships are difficult and sometimes leaders are imperfect and fail and God need the opportunity for repentance and to say that I'm sorry. And God, we know that sometimes we all seek to abandon Christ and look to something else that may be a more immediate hope and fix or as we so think. But, but God, we pray that we would heed Paul's concerns for the church here. And that first of all, we would fix our gaze upon Jesus Christ only. And we would not be burdened and enslaved by looking to anything else for salvation. God, secondly, we pray together that you would help us to love and cherish and appreciate and trust the leaders that you put in our lives. And God, finally, we pray that by your spirit at work in us, you would help us to see what sometimes we do not see that's just before our eyes. But that you would help protect us by giving us good reason and thinking and logic. And we would think carefully and deeply about the issues in our lives and in our churches. And God, as we are kept by Christ, as we remain sons, God, we pray that you would grow us up to maturity in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.